Well, if you would turn to John chapter 2, our text this morning as we work our way through the Gospel of John is John 2, 1 through 11, actually. I changed it there, but we'll just read through chapter or verse 11. And let's just begin by reading this passage of Scripture together. Remember, as we read, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. John 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. In our modern era, we have been periodically plagued by revolutionaries who want to overthrow their governments and try to remake their societies into something that they have determined will be much better. Usually this new order that they bring about tries to make everyone equal in every every way. And when such revolutions are successful, think of the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, that in China, Cuba, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, on and on. They have inevitably resulted not in something better, but in war, chaos, poverty, starvation, etc. In the end, the general population experiences an equality, all right, an equality of misery, except, of course, the revolutionary leaders who become the new rich and powerful elite, and in turn oppress the people in order to maintain their power, just like the government they replaced. What every utopian revolutionary group gets right is a recognition that there is something wrong with the world and their longing for a new and better social order. What they get tragically wrong is that they fail to properly diagnose the problem with the world, claiming that it just lies in the environment, in oppressive social structures, when in reality the root problem of it all is the universal depravity of the human heart. And thus they do not realize that rather than being an enlightened few who are able to build a more just society, they are actually part of the problem that needs to be fixed. Now, of course, they never recognize this, and so instead of admitting that their own ideas have failed, 
blame is shifted to some malevolent external force that is sabotaging it all. And so we see the same old utopian ideas that have failed again and again and left a trail of bloodshed and misery in their wake are picked up, dusted off, and tried again and again in hopes that this time the outcome will be different. Sadly, it never is. But this leaves us, doesn't it, with an urgent question in our modern era. Is there any hope for this broken world? Can the corruption of the human heart that lies underneath it all ever be healed so that the injustices of human societies might somehow be reversed? Can human sorrow and misery ever be turned into joy and peace? There is a sense in which I would argue that the text we've come to this morning in John's Gospel provides a positive answer to that question. Now, in John's Gospel, we've come to a very major transition in the book. In the, in the first chapter, which we just finished, John provided first a prologue to the book, and then he recounted the ministry of John the Baptist and told us how, John, how Jesus called four of his twelve apostles. And now in chapter 2, we are entering into what might be called the main body of the book. It's going to run from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 17. And in these chapters, the author John is going to reveal to us the glory of Jesus by telling us about seven signs which he performed and seven I am statements which he uttered and a variety of discourses that he had with various parties. The story we've come to here, chapter 2, 1 through 7, is the first of the seven signs recorded in the gospel. In fact, John describes it in verse 11 saying this, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And most scholars agree that when John says that, He doesn't simply mean that this is the first of the seven signs recorded in this book, but that this is the first sign that Jesus performed in his ministry, period. In other words, Jesus didn't start performing miracles until he began his public ministry at age 30. And this miracle, recorded right here in John 2, 1 through 7, was the first one that he performed. It was, in other words, the miracle that kicked off his public ministry. John describes the miracles of Jesus as signs. Why? Because he understood that they had a purpose. One scholar, D.A. Carson, explains this purpose well when he said this, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived by the eyes of faith. In particular, the miracles of Jesus were designed to point to him, to his identity, to his mission as the Christ, 
the Son of God, so that people who saw them might by faith perceive his glory and believe in him. Now, with that in mind, let's take a closer look at this first of Jesus' signs, the first of the seven signs recorded in John's gospel, but also the first miracle that he performed in his earthly life, the miracle that launched his public ministry. Now, we'll begin by just walking through the description of the miracle that we have here in 2, 1 through 10, and then we'll determine what it signified, and finally we'll close by reflecting on how it should shape our lives today. So, John begins by telling us that this miracle occurred, he said, on the third day. Now, that's, that reference makes sense if you've been paying attention to the verses leading up to this. Because you'll remember that John has been establishing a timeline of events all the way since chapter 1, verse 19. So, for instance, we see that he used the phrase, the next day, in chapter 1, verse 29, chapter 1, verse 35, and chapter 1, verse 43. Now he tells us that the miracle he's about to describe occurred on the third day. So you see, the next day, the next day, the next day, on the third day. And when he says that, I think he's speaking of the third day after the previous event in the narrative. That is, that interaction that he had with Nathaniel in chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. Now, what's interesting is that if you walk through the narrative, and not every day is explicitly mentioned, but if you begin to count up the days that must have transpired from that first day to now this miracle, you see that the miracle seems to have taken place on the 7th, day in this sequence. In other words, in this first section of the gospel, after his prologue, John is telling us about the events which occurred during a seven-day period leading up to the miracle which marked the beginning of his public ministry. Now, you would expect then that this first sign of Jesus would reveal something about the nature of that ministry, that was being launched. Also, the fact that this first miracle of Jesus was described as happening at the end of a seven-day period indicates that its significance was also connected to what had happened on the six days leading up to it. And this makes sense because during those six days, Jesus had been described by both John the Baptist and his disciples as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as he who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, uh, the strap of whose sandal John the Baptist wasn't even worthy of loosening, as the Messiah of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, as the Son of God and the King of Israel. And now you see, this first miracle which Jesus performed on the seventh day in that sequence not only confirmed all of that, that he was this great Messiah figure that they were describing, but also revealed something that he had come to do in that role going forward. 
Now, in the rest of verses 1 and 2, John reveals the occasion upon which this first miracle of Jesus took place. There he said, There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Okay, the city of Cana, if you had a map of the region, you have the Sea of Galilee up in the north. And Cana is about 11 miles inland, uh, west of the Sea of Galilee. But what's interesting is that it's very close to Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. It's only about four miles away. So this explains, most likely, why Jesus' family was invited to the wedding there. And why Jesus' mother seems to have been very involved with the wedding proceedings, making sure that it went smoothly. In other words, it was probably a wedding of either a close friend or perhaps even a relative of theirs. Now, when it says that Jesus' disciples were invited to the wedding with him, most likely we're talking about those four disciples that he just called to himself, Andrew and Peter, Philip and Nathaniel, uh, perhaps also the author himself, John, right? Because he did talk about another disciple who was unnamed but was with Andrew when he was first called. And one gets the impression as the gospel goes on that this unnamed disciple was John himself. So maybe four, five disciples that were there with him. In verse 3, John tells us what happened at this wedding that led up to Jesus' first miracle. There it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, wine was a critical part of any celebration in the ancient Near East. One rabbi is famously quoted in the Talmud. Every time you hear a sermon on this text, you're going to hear this quote. But he is quoted as saying, there is no joy without wine since wine gladdens the heart of humanity. It just reflected the the common thinking of the day. In fact, the scriptures themselves affirm in Psalm 104 verse 15 that God has given, quote, quote, wine to gladden the heart of men. Now, of course, the scriptures also condemn drunkenness as sinful. And we should realize that the wine that they would be using in the ancient world was diluted quite a bit with water. So it's not nearly as strong as the wine that we drink today, which would have been called strong drink and looked at much more askance in the New Testament or in the Bible. Nevertheless, wine would have been a critical part of any wedding celebration. And to run out of it before the celebration was over would have been a serious social faux pas, a serious blunder on the part of the host. It would have brought a level of public shame and disgrace upon the groom's family. And it was no doubt because she knew the family hosting this wedding and desired to see them avoid such public humiliation that Mary, the mother of Jesus, sprang into action when she realized the wine had run out. And what did she do? What she probably always did in such situations, she went and told Jesus. And this really makes sense, doesn't it, on a number of levels. There's reason to believe, for instance, because in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus himself is called the carpenter from Nazareth, that that perhaps by this time her husband was already dead, Joseph, which meant that Jesus, her firstborn son, had become sort of the de facto head of the family, and also 
being a sinless man, a perfect man, Jesus must have been doing a pretty good job in that role. And you can imagine that his mother had come to admire him, to rely upon his strong and wise and compassionate leading of the family. So when she discovers the wine has run out at this wedding and that her perhaps close friend, perhaps even family member was in danger of suffering, danger of suffering public embarrassment, she probably said to herself, I'm going to go tell Jesus. He'll know what to do. It's not, I don't think, that she was expecting him at this point to perform a miracle. After all, if this really was the first of his signs, the first of his miracles, then he would never have done one before. This was his first one. But she certainly thought, Jesus will know what to do. He can help somehow. We read his response in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, obviously, this verse raises a number of questions, doesn't it? First, why did Jesus address his mother saying, woman? Obviously, it seems very cold. It seems detached. It seems even harsh when in English. It's important for us to understand, though, that this was a common way of address in the Greek language and wouldn't have been seen in any sense as being disrespectful. However it did reflect a measure of relational distance. Sort of like saying, madam, in English. And therefore, it wasn't the way that a son would typically address his mother. As Kostenberger has put it, it was, quote, an expression of polite distance. Second, what did Jesus mean by this phrase, what does this have to do with me? Now, this was actually a common Semitic idiom. Uh, It would have meant something like, what do you and I have in common in this matter? Now, it wouldn't have come across as rude, but like the address woman, it definitely indicated a relational distance that would not have been normal between a son and his beloved mother. So what is going on here? Mary had a close relationship with her son, Jesus. She'd probably come to rely upon him for counsel, for help, since the death of her husband, if he truly had died by this point. And most likely, you can imagine, when she came to Jesus for help, he would respond kindly and be willing to help her. But on this occasion, he addresses his mother with the equivalent of madam and declares that her request was not his concern. Now, what explains this polite distance reflected in this response of Jesus to his own mother? Well, it is somewhat mysterious, but I think the answer must lie in the fact that he was about to embark on a new stage in his life, that he was about to embark upon his public ministry as the Messiah. He'd have been announced by John the Baptist. He had begun calling his followers, and this would be his first sign. So yes, Jesus was the son of Mary, but more fundamentally, you remember, he was the son of God. Yes, he had earthly responsibilities to her as, his, as her earthly son, but his greater responsibility was to his heavenly father. 
Yes, she had given birth to him. But it was God the Father who had sent him into the world. You know, to this point, he seems to have lived a relatively normal life as a carpenter's son and then a carpenter himself supporting the family in Nazareth. So that when he did embark on his public ministry, the people who lived in his town had a hard time believing him. Isn't this Joseph and Mary's son, the carpenter? But now it was time for Jesus to fulfill the works which the Father had given to him. So while he loved his mother, and there was nothing inherently wrong with her request, Jesus' response was designed to make clear to her that from here on out, his relationship with her would change. And these kinds of domestic requests that she brought to him would give way now to the demands of his ministry as the Messiah. But finally, what did Jesus mean when he replied to his mother? You can almost see his eyes glazing over him, staring off into the distance. My hour has not yet come. It's interesting, whenever Jesus refers to his hour in the Gospel of John, you know what it refers to? The hour of his death. There's no reason to believe that he's referring to something else in this context. But then what could he mean? Think about it. His mother tells him, there's no more wine for the wedding. He replies, my hour has not yet come. The hour of my death has not arrived. Well, it's clear that Jesus saw something significant in Mary's request, something that was beyond what Mary had intended by her request. More specifically, he saw some connection between her request of him to address the lack of wine for a wedding and his own death on the cross. But what was the connection? Well, it is somewhat mysterious, isn't it? It's difficult to be sure, but most commentators believe, and I would agree with this, that the connection probably lies along the following lines. When the prophets had described the redemption which the Messiah would provide in the last days. They often use the imagery of wine to describe the joy and the blessings that it would bring to his people. So, for instance, this is one such quote from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verses 11 through 12, and the prophets foretelling the redemption coming in the last days, in the days of the Messiah. And he says... For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall languish no more. We find something similar in Amos chapter 9 verses 13 through 14 where it says this. Again, speaking of the future redemption that would arrive with the Messiah, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. 
They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. In other words, wine was a symbol speaking to the joy of the blessings of the redemption that was coming with the Messiah, along with grain and new oil and abundance. So, Mary's request that Jesus address the fact that the wine had run out, that they needed more wine to sustain the joy of this wedding celebration, may have reminded Jesus of the way that his coming death on the cross and, of course, its subsequent resurrection would usher in the blessings of salvation which the prophets had foreseen, these blessings which would fill his people with abundance of joy. Using the imagery of wine flowing down from the hills, dripping from the mountains. We might also add that the fact that Mary made this request in the context of a wedding might have reminded Jesus that his death and the redemptive blessings that he was bringing in through his cross and resurrection were going to establish a new covenant relationship with his people. A new marriage, if you were which had also been foretold by the prophets. His death, in other words, was the means by which he would purchase the church to be his bride forever in the bonds of the new covenant. Wine, wedding, joy. Perhaps this is what was being brought to Jesus' mind as his eyes glazed over at his mother's request at the beginning of his public ministry. Now, if these things do indeed shed some light upon the connection between Mary's request and Jesus' death, then we begin to understand why he replied to her, my hour has not yet come. When Mary came to Jesus and she said, they have no wine, hoping that he would do something about it so that the joy of the wedding celebration might not be disrupted, Jesus seems to have seen in it a picture of the joy of salvation which he would bring to his new covenant bride through his death on the cross. And thus he replied, my hour has not yet come. What's interesting is that while Jesus has replied to his mother's request, I mean, listen to it again, woman, what, has, what does this have to do with me? Now, you would think she'd walk away from that thinking, well, I guess he's not going to do anything about it. But instead, the opposite seems to be the case. She seems to have come away with the impression that he would. Because verse 5 says, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And what we see in the rest of the passage is that she was right. The scene is set there in verse 6. It says, now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, of course, this spoke to the sheer volume of water involved. I mean, all told, these six stone jars would have held something between 120 and 180 gallons of water. But more specifically, more significant perhaps, is the fact that John makes a point to tell us what the water in these jars was used for. Now, that probably referred 
to the purification rites that were prescribed by the rabbis rather than any specific commands in the, New, in the Old Testament law. In fact, um, in Mark's gospel, he actually describes all the purification rites that were the tradition of the rabbis. Nevertheless, all of these washing rites were tied into the Old Covenant and particularly to its laws regarding ceremonial purity, that is the need to be pure as God's people in his presence. And most commentators believe, and I would, I would agree also, that the fact that these water jars held water that was used for ceremonial cleansing connected in with the Old Covenant was also important to the significance of the miracle that Jesus was about to perform with the water. The miracle is described in verses 7 through 10. There it says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, i.e. they don't know any better, than the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus had turned the water used for purification rites into good wine for the joy of the wedding guests. This was, of course, first of all, just an act of divine power. It testified to Jesus' identity as the Son of God, because only God had such authority over the created order. Like when he made fish come into the disciples' nets or when he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. It also testified to his goodness, to his generosity as the kingly Messiah. Notice the abundance of wine. I mean, 120 to 180 gallons of wine now contained in those six stone water jars. I guarantee you, any of you has a wedding and you order that much wine, you're going to have a lot left over, right? Finally, it pointed to the nature and the quality of Jesus' redemptive work. And here, I think, is where we get to the very heart of this first public ministry. And what it signified about his identity and his mission. So Jesus' act of miraculously turning water into wine to bring joy to the guests at this wedding in Cana seemed to point to the fact that, as all of his signs did, he was the Christ, the Son of God, who would usher in something new. The new covenant redemption foretold by the prophets, which would bring abundant and lasting joy to the people of God. One writer, Scotty Smith, has put it this way. He said, this sign revealed that Jesus, quote, is the Messiah who's come in the fullness of time to usher in the longed for messianic age in which wine Evidence of blessed fruitfulness and provision will flow in overwhelming abundance and the mountains will drip with the best wine for the joy of God's people. And the fact that the water he turned into wine 
had previously been designated for Jewish rites of purification tied in with the old covenant. Do you see? It seemed to enhance the richness of the symbolic act by showing that the messianic redemption that Jesus was ushering in would supersede, would replace the lesser blessings of the old covenant and all of its rites. F.F. Bruce famously described the meaning of this miraculous sign at Cana, saying that it signified Christ changing of the water of Jewish purification into the wine of the new age. Leon Morris, another scholar, says he changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity, the water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and fullness of eternal life in Christ, the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. You know, perhaps he's getting a little bit allegorical there, but you know, there's something to that. D.A. Carson rightly observes that the sign at Cana conveys what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The old has gone, the new has come in Jesus Christ. I don't think that it is a coincidence that in the very next chapter, Jesus begins to speak of the new birth and the work of the Spirit to renew the hearts of men that they might see the kingdom of God. Indeed, when the master of the feast declared that this last wine which Jesus had created was superior to the first, he spoke far better than he knew, didn't he? The wine of Christ's new covenant redemption would be far better than the wine of the old covenant system. So you see, this first miracle, which Jesus performed, turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana, seems to be a sign pointing us beyond itself to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who would usher in the blessings of salvation for the people of God, which were pictured by the prophets when they spoke of a day when the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. It wouldn't come all at once, would it? It would begin with the hour of his death, followed by his resurrection on the third day, where he would secure, where he would purchase their full and final purification from sin and where he would pour out his spirit into the hearts of his people to give them new life and transformation. That would be the beginning, the dawn of the new creation when, so to speak, the age to come would already begin breaking into this present evil age. But it would reach its final consummation when this same Jesus would return in glory at the end of the age to raise the dead and judge the wicked and make all things new. Then the blessings foretold by the prophets, you see, would reach their full and final fulfillment. And all the pains and the sorrows of this present life will give way to the perfect peace and fullness of joy for the people of God, when Christ establishes righteous rule in full upon a renewed earth. So that's the sign which Jesus performed and 
the best that I can understand it, what it signified. Let's just close by considering how it applies to our lives today. And I think the most obvious, the immediate application of the passage is actually right there in verse 11, isn't it? Look there, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, there we go, isn't it? You see, this miraculous sign that we have seen recorded here in John 2, 1 through 11, it's meant to reveal to us the glory of Jesus Christ. Specifically, it reveals to us, as I've said, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who has finally ushered in that redemption foretold by the prophets through the hour of his death and resurrection, which would lead to abundant joy and blessing for the people of God. So the Apostle Paul could now say to us, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, Rejoice. The only appropriate response to those of us here this morning who are now seeing the glory of Jesus manifest through this first of his signs is to believe in him like the disciples did. Indeed, the hope of the gospel is that anyone who would believe in him, repenting of their sins, will receive the blessings of salvation which he has come to provide resulting in everlasting and abundant joy. So hear the words of the ancient prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And again a little later, come, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Don't be like those who were at the wedding in Cana, but missed the sign that Jesus performed. Or like those, the servants, it seems, who saw the sign but didn't perceive in it the glory of Christ. Be like the disciples who saw the glory of Christ revealed in his first miracle and believed in him. And brothers and sisters, as Christians, we who have come to believe in Jesus Christ, this passage reminds us of why our lives ought to be marked by an overflowing joy and gladness. You know, there's a reason why Jesus saw in the feasting and the wine at this wedding in Cana an image of what he had come to provide as the Messiah. Wine and feasting were symbols of joy, symbols of celebration. And Jesus knew that this new covenant redemption which he had come to usher in would cause his people to rejoice and celebrate. When he inaugurated, in other words, the new age of messianic salvation, it would mean for his people liberation from sin and the oppression of the devil, peace and reconciliation with God, the outpouring of God's abundant blessings. Remember how Paul described them? The unfathomable riches of Christ. 
peace flows like a river. Justice rolls down from the mountains. Righteousness covers the earth like rain. What the prophets foretold has begun to come to pass because the Messiah has arrived. This is why, by the way, the prophets so often, when they were announcing from far away the coming age of redemption that the Messiah would bring in, they would say things like this. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people. Joel 2, 23-25. Be glad, O children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14-15. Sing aloud. O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So, brothers and sisters, John 2, 1 through 11, it reveals to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who ushers in the glorious redemption foretold by the prophets. He's provided the new wine, as it were, of messianic salvation. And it's now for us, as his people, who have received it through our union with him, as a bride to her husband. It's now for us to rejoice. To shout aloud, to be glad over Jesus Christ for the glorious salvation he has provided now and will provide in its fullness at the end of the age. Yes, we will still struggle with sin. Yes, our lives will have temporal pain and earthly loss and disappointment. But as Paul said, while we sorrow, we're always rejoicing should never be able to completely wipe out the joy we have in Jesus Christ as the one who even now is making all things new. Brothers and sisters, I think again this morning we should go forth from here rejoicing in Jesus Christ. And at the same time, this sign serves as a reminder. If you're a Christian here this morning, then do you see as This same author, John, would put it in a different book in his first epistle in John chapter 2 when he would tell us that we can no longer love the world and the things of the world. Why? Because we no longer belong to the present evil age, which is passing away and will finally be judged and destroyed. Now, we are a new creation. We belong even now to heaven. We are citizens of heaven. We belong to the age to come. This age that Christ has inaugurated through his death and resurrection, an age of redemption, an age of peace and joy, which even now is coming 
but one day will come in full. So you can't be content to just sit and indulge your sinful desires and follow the course of this world anymore because now you belong to God's coming new kingdom in Jesus Christ. And he is even now at work in your soul by the Spirit to renovate your soul, to make you righteous, to make you holy as he is holy, to conform you to the image of Christ, to make you a fit citizen of his kingdom. And brothers and sisters, of course, we're all going to still sin in many ways because we still live in these bodies of death, like Paul said. Who will deliver me from this body of death? We're never going to be perfectly holy until Jesus returns to raise us from the dead, incorruptible and undefiled. Come, Lord Jesus. And every day, we have to trust fully in the atoning work of Christ on the cross for our forgiveness and our right standing with God, rather than our own personal holiness. Nevertheless, as children of the age to come, as it were, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we must always be agonizing over our sin, striving by his spirit at work within us to walk according to that newness of life that he's given us in holiness, in righteousness all our days, as the scripture said. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4, 8. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Well, in conclusion, is there any hope for this broken world? Can the corruption of humanity ever be healed so that the injustices and sin in human societies could somehow be overcome, reversed? Well, certainly the hope's not in any revolutionary party seeking to destroy and rebuild society according to their own utopian ideals, which, by the way, largely are absent of God. I mean, people, they don't realize they're part of the problem and will inevitably do more harm than good. But there is a man, the God-man, who is indeed bringing about the redemption of all things, who has made peace through the blood of his cross, who will one day return to make all things new and bring fullness of joy to his people at that final wedding supper of the Lamb. He is the one, the one who turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana. He is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. He is the hope of this broken world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the fact that you have given us access through the written testimony of the eyewitnesses to this incredible event which took place thousands of years ago at a wedding in a small town east west of the Sea of Galilee. And how through this interaction between Mary and Jesus and the servants behind the scenes, 
so that not even the guests at the wedding saw it happen, Jesus performed his first miracle. And in it, his glory was manifest for those that have eyes to see. And surely we know, Father, that it was put into the scriptures and passed down to us that we might see the glory of Christ in this first of his signs. Open the eyes of our hearts, we pray. If someone is here who is not a believer, open their eyes to see the glory of Christ for the first time this morning and to believe in him. And give us illumination of heart as believers to grasp with greater depth the glory of our King and Savior as we behold it in this sign this morning that we might love him more fully and serve him more faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.